0: Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f- gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.
1: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. You can download all the other episodes at the website medsailor.com just by going back in history into my past posts and, and downloading them right from the website. I'd like some input. Would it be worthwhile for me just to put out a bundle of say 25 or 50 episodes? in Gumroad and charge 10 or $20 for those episodes. They're already there. They're available for free, but for convenience, if some people want to be able to download it as a bundle instead of have to search through the website for the individual episodes. I'm wondering if there'd be a demand for that. If you have a thought on whether I should do that or not, drop me a note. Franz at MedSailor. And if you have some suggestions for future episodes, also drop me a note. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get on to my interview. I'm talking again for I think the third or fourth time with Dan Culpepper. You've listened to these interviews in the past. This is a continuation of his summer travels through the Mediterranean. Dan, where did I leave you off the last time we started talking? Well, Franz, we're kind of making
0: a habit of this, aren't we? Uh, the, uh, Venta Tene, I think was the island we, we ended up, uh, the last podcast, uh, talking about, and we had just, we're just kind of leaving there. That was the place, I'm pretty sure, with the old, uh, where they did the Roman galleys and, uh, the, the little port that was basically carved out of the island. It was very cool. And, uh, from there, we, we basically just headed back to put the boat to, uh, to rest for, uh, for the winter. So, uh. That's, uh, yeah, we, I had the crew of uh, Keith and Jeffrey with me, and, uh, yeah, we headed back to Gaeta uh, to put the boat up, and it, it took us a couple days. They actually took off the next day, and then I stayed for another two or three days just uh, finalizing things with the, with the marina there, and, that, and you've stayed there before, right?
1: Right. I I, I wintered my boat one, one winter in Gaeta, and I was very impressed with the boatyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I think the uh, Navy fleet—I'm well, not sure which fleet it is—is is just right next there in Gaeta. Did you uh, happen to sail through that when you were there?
0: Yeah, we did. We we when we came in, we noticed a a big whatever it is—a destroyer or something—or a, a very large patrol boat the Navy has right there, or right against the dock, and with a giant, um, uh, you know, border baffle thing—these enormous fenders—creating uh, a. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's a security zone around the boat. And you kind of have to make your way around that to to get into the marina now. So that might not have been there when you were there. But that's... no,
1: no, it wasn't. In fact, there were several ships that were moored up there, big navy ships, and we just sort of sailed in there and wandered around and waved at the sailors. But I...
0: <laughs> yeah, things have changed now. Uh, you you can't get within uh, a couple hundred yards, I, I think, of the uh, of the ships at all. They, these massive. I mean, they're probably ten feet high uh, fenders. And uh, they're all, all connected like sausages all the way around, and uh, when you can see over them. You can see the ship, of course, and and we could hear uh, taps. We could hear whatever it was in the morning. We could hear the bugle call and and uh, the various uh, sounds of a of a military base, which I'm vaguely familiar with. So anyway, so uh, yeah, we we put the boat in there, and and we had at the dock for a couple of days in preparation and and kind of uh, acclimating myself to how how it's really done, uh, in Italy. And, and it took a, took a few days. It was a definite learning curve. They, um, they, they do things differently. And I've, and I've learned from the past, uh, several months since I'm doing everything now remotely, trying to get some work done on the boat. And, and I, we, we can discuss some, some details, but the, the boat came into the marina and really got laid up in pretty good shape. Uh, she survived, uh, uh, all the the travels of the you know forty five hundred miles or five thousand miles we did uh really wonderfully uh, there were just a few breakdowns and a few things that happened and uh and we can discuss several things but that that was um so i we had to draw a list up and I had talked to the uh the brother and sister team over there and and Anna was especially nice in trying to uh uh create a list of what they were going to do and trying to, uh, understand, you know, I was, a, I was a little apprehensive because you know, doing this from just leaving your, your baby behind and, and just trusting that you've heard good things about the marina. You, you understand that the boat's in fairly good shape and understand what they're going to be doing. But still, I was pretty apprehensive about how I was going to do this, the, the few jobs I had. And, and when we hauled the boat out of the water, it wasn't, the most positive experience and it was it was unfortunate the we I took the boat I, I was kind of on my own for the for the couple of days so I prepped all the stuff down below that you, you should do and the cushions and making sure everything was taken off the boat that needed to be taken off the boat and packing all my bags and trying to get everything ready and they were going to come by and help me take the uh, the jib off I was leaving the main I have a roll of furling main into the mast and so generally I just leave it rolled up and That helps for several reasons. I was leaving the rig up, and by keeping the sail inside, you don't get that banging that you would when you take the sail off and the foil that's in the inside that the sail wraps around. uh, I found in the past when I've taken that sail off, it it tends to bang around a little bit with the slight movement of the boat. So I usually just leave the sail in there, and it's always been fine uh, rolled up, unless I had to do something with it. This is a brand-new sail. Everything is working fine. Rolled it up wrapped it around the mast, covered it over, should be fine. I was taking the, the Genoa down, and that was because it was probably cut too long. Uh, when Doyle sails made it, they had made the main a little bit too long. They had cut that. Uh, the, the Genoa looked pretty good, but what we found in the crossing, the, the sail stretched, and I kept uh, you know, taking up the slack in the halyard, and I think I might have taken it a bit too much, and it damaged the top swivel, so when we try to uh bring the sail down the swivel uh if you're familiar with the swivel at the top it has to slide down
1: a foil a right now, now this is on the this is on the jib right yeah this is on the jib okay. so the
0: head sail uh so we had to get it down from from you know 64 feet up wherever it was and it was jammed it would, just would not come down so I'm I'm at the dock myself trying to get it down I can't get it down so finally uh, you know one of the workers shows up he's trying to help me out too we can't do it so i roll it back up and i take it to the travel lift to uh to get it and and when i get there uh, i i've told them you know i have an issue with this this geno, I can't get it down we uh i back the boat into the travel lift to haul it out they haul it up a little ways and kind of stabilize it and then the guy gets on to 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 help out um Uh, just kind of straightening the boat and he's he jumps aboard the boat and he pulls his back out just he's screaming oh tears his back falls onto the deck and I'm like oh my god you know I I thought he had been shot or something he just he just fell down he's grabbing his back and he's in agony and and you know we've all felt that and you're a certain age you've certainly felt your back tweak and this was just like his his back just broke and and uh, so I'm grabbing him and a bunch of guys come up and they all get aboard the other other two guys that were helping, including the lift operator. And he gets there. And within five minutes, they had had, they had, had a car drove up. They, they they One guy ran and got the car. He pulls up and they carry him to the car. And then all four guys get in the car and drive away. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. So I, I was on the boat. The boat's kind of... Kind of bobbing around and floating in the slings, as it was doing, and and so I, I I you know quickly jump off the boat. I'm I'm tying the lines up and trying to secure the boat, and I'm looking around. There's there's nobody in the marina. I mean it was basically all the guy, all four guys that were helping me just just took off. And so I kind of make my way to the office. I'm trying to find Anna, and I say, I said, um, you know what, what happened? I said they just they took off. The guy got hurt. And He probably went to the hospital. And, you know, the poor guy, I mean, it's just, it was awful, but, but it was, it was, it was very Italian. It was one of those moments in which, you know, that, that was the most important thing and it should have been, you know, he was this, one of their colleagues was in, in real pain and they just, and it was, it was endearing to a point, but it was, it was also just kind of hilarious. I was just going to just laugh and I'm just, boats floating there for the next four or five hours. And they finally got another guy that was a lift operator who could take the boat out. But in meanwhile, we had to get the sail off, and they finally got a guy from the sail loft uh, near there, came over and trying to get the sail down. So he, we had to haul him to the top of the mast, and he's fiddling with it, trying to fiddly with it. So finally he, he just just grabs onto it, and we ease him down. He basically just slides down the headstay, uh, you know, just jerking it, jerk, 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 all the way down, getting it down. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't know what the foil's going to look like. Uh, but it ended up the foil was fine. Uh, the, the bushings had, had failed, everything had failed, and it was it was a mess. So they said, well, in, in, so over the past couple of months, we've been trying to deal with this issue, and they finally got it off the boat, took the headstay off, the foil got got this swivel off, and then they they said, well, you need a brand new one. So I'm looking at the new ones, and it's crazy. They're $1,300 for this piece of uh, metal that you just kind of look at it and just shake your head and I'm trying to think of another way of doing it. Maybe they can send it to me. I have this great guy in, in Fort Lauderdale down in Florida who does great work and had, had rebuilt the bottom part of the swivel before at the furler. And so I've, I had to got this to him as soon as I can. They said, well, we can send it to you, but it's going to cost, you know, a few hundred dollars because uh, the customs, it could get locked up in customs. And it's almost as you've probably found. It's it's. Really, very difficult to send stuff to and fro Europe. It
1: it is very hard. That's why I haul lots of stuff when I sail. When I fly back and forth, my luggage is all boat parts. It's all it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember you talking about it, and and when crew comes, and I've heard that in other podcasts and blogs, people always talk about when people come to visit, they have crew coming to visit. Man, they load them up. Yeah. They load them up with stuff, and now I know why. Now I know why. So this stupid little swivel that's probably nine inches. By 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 four inches or something, a small kind of piece of metal. Um, I can't get it back here. Uh, I talked to, uh, you know, various other places. We, we can't deal with it. So w- my sister lives in Milan. She's living in Milan right now. Her husband has a job there. So what they did was they shipped it to Milan, which was very cheap. They could do that. Now, my sister's going to bring it back in May, and she's going to, as soon as they arrive to their uh, son's graduation in, in St. Louis, they're going to send it to me or to the guy in Florida he's going to ship it right back either to them or to me and they're either going to take it back to Italy or I'll take it back to Italy to the boat and then they'll put it back on the boat there so it it, it it's proven that I just have to be creative about the whole thing and this whole process of of having the these little things repaired the winch is a whole nother issue I have an electric winch uh, an ST66 which is a big big ass uh, winch that um, see, I just said ass now now you're going to have you now you're going to change your rating on, on podcasts. you're going to have to be, have that little E for explicit language. Uh, the, yeah, the, the winch had is a Lumar winch, and I contacted Lumar in, in England, and, and that was another thing. They couldn't ship the control box ends up being the issue, and a new control box is roughly $1,300 dollars. seems like all the parts are about the same crazy for a tiny little overload switch. I said, well, can't you build the overload switch? They said, yeah, if you can get the part to us. So, and the, the Italians are like, well, we can't send the part because then when they send it back, it's going to get caught up. And so I went through this thing. And then, and then Emilio, who's the electrician there, is, is, is a, really a genius. The guy's fantastic. And I just had to trust the fact that he's going to fix the system. And I, I had one single button on a winch, and it, it, it goes from one speed to a second speed automatically by having it has a load sensor so under load, when it's really feeling something, it cuts into the second speed. And on an electric winch, that's what they do. It's, it's kind of an automatic transmission. But he suggested that we just do a manual, two buttons and an overload, a, a, a breaker switch right there, which ended up being a really smart idea because um, if you haul someone, the scenario that he painted, which uh, was that if you haul someone to the top of the mast on the electric winch and if it doesn't turn off, Having the automatic shutoff right there is a safety issue also. Uh, even though you always have a secondary uh, with someone going to the top of the mast, it's um, it was a really good idea. And, you know, the talent pool there for these kind of things was is really terrific, but they just have a different way of doing things. It just takes you, – you, what's dawned on me that I just simply have to get out of my American mode of thinking about that this guy's going to rob me and just understand that if you like the yard – you trust them. You've heard good things. You basically just just say these are jobs I need done. Just do them, and I'll pay the bill when I get there. And just trust that you're not going to get robbed. In in the states, I'd never do that. I, I'm very very careful about if they're going to do a particular job. Do that job. Give me an estimate, and then uh, you know follow that estimate. I want to have that estimate approved before I ever do a job. So of course I'm talking to. Anna at the yard and saying, listen, I have a priority order. Uh, Please don't start the uh, work before the previous job is complete and a new job has to be approved. I have to, you know, all these things. She just kind of looked at me and said, okay. And then (laughs) I left. And the last thing on my list, I wanted it in order from the most important expensive things to the least important and least expensive things at the end. I really wanted to deal with the things I could afford, you know, start my my thing from the beginning. And that was seen so logical to me. And I'd been home maybe three weeks and I contacted my contact there, um, Jane, who's an American and, and she does all the translations. And she said, Oh, well, your teak work is done. I said, I said, what? Yeah. Well, no, they had a couple guys were free. And so they stuck them on the teak and they've, they've sanded a little bit of the bottom and the issue was right there. I said, uh, Jane, that was on the It's the end of the list. That's number eight and nine. You know, that wasn't, you're supposed to do in priority order. Well, this is kind of the way they're going to do it. And, and, and I have to say when, when the jobs have been done, the prices have been very reasonable. The hourly rate is, is half what it is here. And, and the, and from the pictures and the photos I've seen, the, the work is really top notch, good stuff. So, um, it, it might have made me nervous, and I'm, I'm still a little apprehensive, but I have to kind of just have faith that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get done, and there's a reason why they have a good reputation, and just kind of let them do what they do, and not something I would never uh, ever have done in Nantucket or Stanford here or at a brewer's here in the United States, which I've had issues uh, of. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about that uh, along that line, which, which was I had a, I, I had a prop, and needed to have a prop taken off. And I, I fiddled with it. And I couldn't get the prop off. It was on this boat. And so I, I finally said to the brewer's yard, I was in, okay, why don't you have this guy, you know, have someone take off the prop. So I just happened to be there working on the boat. And I heard this guy kind of swearing and, and, and he, I came down and I said, so what's up? He goes, well, they sent me to take this prop off, but I've never taken a prop off before. So I'm not sure where it's going. I'm going to get on the internet and find out. So he goes to the internet and finds out about this, finds out about it. Well, he finally gets the prop off as I'm helping him and everything. Brewers charged me two and a half hours. And part of that time was him studying to learn how to take the prop off at at $98 an hour. And I was flabbergasted. I'm just saying to the, the guy, are you kidding me that I, I paid for your kid to learn how to do this? But that's the reason I'm hiring you guys. Don't you get it? You know, it's kind of that that seemed to be a one of the things they are maximizing their investment and each boat needs to make some money. And that's, uh, so that's always in the back of my head. So dealing with it in Italy, it might be frustrating because, uh, you know, they're not towing the line. They're not doing exactly what what they said they would do at that exact moment, but there, there's a little more human quality to it. And, and they, so far, so far, so good. And I'm happy with it. And so there've been uh, several jobs that I needed done the boat was eventually hauled out uh it's sitting there I, I could see it on google earth uh they must have uh taken one of the satellite pictures of that time and it's um it it seems to be content there they took care of the dinghy they winterized uh, various systems that i didn't get to i had done some of the domestic and they took care of the engine engines the generator uh air conditioning units uh, they um you know they did some things while i left and um it's been you know, it was a good, uh, uh, so far it's been a good experience. And having the contact there, uh, Jane Kohler is her name, and she, she's kind of the, uh, the language. She's an American, so she speaks English, of course. She's been married to an Italian for 30 years. And she has just been wonderful, absolutely wonderful as the voice of the marina. So that, that's, that's made, it, made it much more comfortable to do. But again, leaving a boat in another country is, uh, is a new experience for me. And uh, I, my comfort levels is uh, getting a little bit better with it. But still, uh, there are a few issues when I go back. I have to, when they first initially took the boat out, they took the, um, the strap uh, underneath the boat to haul the boat out. And it was in the wrong place. I kept saying it's in the wrong place, in the wrong place. I have it actually marked on the side of the boat where the straps need to be. And no, 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 no. It's here and they're kind of like start hauling it up. And I'm like, no, no, no. And the boat comes out of the water a little bit. It's right on the prop. It's right on and I'm I'm like, okay. you know, I have forty thousand pounds of boat on the prop, how much has it damaged the prop? And we when we hauled out of the water we we checked and it seemed to turn fine. But you know what? I, I'm not gonna know until next June or July when I really put under load and, and see what it's all about. So it's it's little little stuff like that, maybe a little nervous, but um but so far so good. It's been a pretty pretty good experience.
1: Do you have much woodwork on your boat? Do you have uh wood ha- wood hatches or anything like that?
0: Um, No, no wood hatches. I have, uh, you know, companionway boards. I have, uh, uh, you know, the some wood outside the boat. There's a very, you know, the tow rail just a little bit around is 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 teak all the way around. I mean, enough that it's it. I kind of like the look of it. So there's uh, 100 feet of uh, tow rail that's probably about four inches wide, uh, stretching all the way down each side of the boat. And then, and just little uh, hand uh, rails here and there. So not a tremendous amount, but <laughs> you know, when it's 100, and 125 feet of it, 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 it's a little more than I probably would want, ideally. But I, I like the look. I, I really do like the look.
1: So. Well, the reason I want, I ask you that, when I sailed across the Atlantic, my starboard side got distinctly more weathered than my port side. Did you That's notice it? that?
0: Absolutely, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. I had had it touched up with a couple of coats before I left, just to kind of really seal it. Um, and and actually, it held up pretty well. It, it, it held up pretty well on the crossing. Uh, it did suffer on one side more than the other, uh, but actually, I, I don't ever put the put the rail in the water on my boat. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. So I, I'm not having the the rail go through the water, but I've heard from your trip that you probably put the rail down many times.
1: Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So it, it's not something I I tend to, to try to sail as flat as possible. I think that's probably the most efficient way, and and the boat's just it's it's pretty big for for uh, you're not going to sail it on its ear. It probably wouldn't be a, a smart idea anyway. And the boat feels pretty comfortable at maybe you know fifteen degrees, twenty degrees at the most. Uh, it kind of just, uh, it, I think it's designed for that. And, and as you know, I mean, the, the more and more heel doesn't make the boat any more efficient. If anything, it just wants to be uh, flatter is probably better, at least in the case of my boat. So.
1: Well, talk to me a little bit about your website. What resources and information do you have at your website?
0: Well, and uh, it, it's basically, it's just, it's sailingheldaline.com.
1: And let's spell <laughs> Heldaline because that got me going.
0: <laughs> now, he- Heldaline is the biggest problem. I should have, I should have called it uh, Sailing Hell, but I didn't. It ended up, uh, uh, my two daughters, Helen and Madeline. So I combined their names and, and created uh, a name that most of the time when we're, we're clearing in someplace, they'll say, uh, is it Sailing Holdaline? is this the, the sailing vessel hold a line? No, no, it's held a line. And I have to end up spelling it, but the, uh, yeah, it's H E L D E L E I N E. So that's uh held a line sailing held a line. And it, um, so that's what we used for just blogging. We used it to, uh, uh, you know, send pictures for relatives more than anything else, even though we've had, you know, I don't know. I think it's like eleven thousand views of it, but of course that was over four months, and probably ten thousand of it were—that's yeah, probably my mother. But still, it—we uh, it, we tended to just uh, my daughters wrote, wrote some blogs, especially in in Morocco when we were there, and in Italy. And some of them were really pretty hilarious, and uh, posted photos. You know, typical thing that you do on, on. I just wanted a way of of putting memories down here that we could. Uh, in one one place. So we ended up doing that. And I just recently added some resources, which are under the resource section, which is some procedures that I do aboard the boat for emergency procedures. So uh, man overboard, uh fire, uh flooding, you know, any kind of leaking, uh, a lightning, you know, reactions to typical things like I could think of in the middle of the night, you know, the things you wake up in the middle of the night going, okay, what would I do if this happened kind of thing? And over the years, uh, through stag trips and for family trips, we've come up with some procedures for the boat that we tend to use. Now, those are held line procedures. And as I stated in the resources, uh, uh, each boat, I mean, there's not a right and wrong way necessarily of doing all these things. I mean, take a man overboard, for instance. And there are all these books you can read about, you know, man goes overboard, you do a figure eight, you sail back, you do blah, blah, blah. And... and as being the way, right way of doing it, but we never found that worked. We tried, we just didn't. I mean, the, the quick stop system of just getting the boat stopped, get the sails down, do whatever you want, turn the damn engine on, go back and get them, uh, seemed to be the best idea. And if you were sailing, procedures of uh, heaving to and getting control of the boat, but the basic thing is you do not want the man overboard disappearing behind you. And, but the point is that there are different ways of doing things. And that's fine, but each boat really needs to agree on the way it is done on that particular boat. So uh, certainly you can you can tweak things here and there, and, and I certainly go over the procedures, and we discuss these things, we practice them. Every single time there's a new crew member, uh, they have to go through the red book that has all the procedures in it. And if they disagree or they come from a sailing experience and they have some experience, they say, you know what? what about this? What about that, Dan? You know, I, I, I've done this on another boat and with one of my crew members, Tom Mayo, who had a lot of experience. Uh, you know, he said, what about this? What about that? So we could nip and tuck the procedures and change them kind of on the fly, but we then would make that the way it was done and we would practice it that way. So, you know, the last thing you want, you know, during a, an emergency is debate <laughs> about how you do something. So even though there might have been or maybe a more efficient way of doing any particular procedure. There's nothing like having a checklist in front of you that somebody is yelling out, do this, do that, check the water. Is it fresh water? Is it salt water that's leaking? Is it this, is it that? And having that, uh, you know, as, as the military does, and having those checklists is a very, uh, very good thing to have in an emergency. So I've been, uh, Pretty good about writing it out and having having those things printed and in a red folder aboard the boat. Uh, every uh, red binder, every person who does come, every new crew is required to go through that, and then we'll discuss it one on one. Then we discuss it with the entire crew, and then we start practicing and we do man overboard drills several times. And you know, I'm not talking about little coastal with family going out or with friends visiting for a, for a short trip. I mean, I'll certainly talk about safety issues, but we won't get into vast details. But certainly on on voyages, we do go through every single procedure. I do put a blindfold on someone at the bow and tell them to put their hands on every fire extinguisher all the way through the boat. You, know, you should be able to do that. And and it's a good good way of someone becoming familiar with the boat. Because in the middle of the night, waking up, there's a, there's a, you know, someone yells fire or something's going on. You need to feel comfortable working, working around the boat, and knowing what's on the boat. So, uh, and it doesn't take that long, mean right? It doesn't take that long to know that obviously they get better the longer the trip goes along. But, um, but I am flexible for, for learning things. I really do want to be taught a better way of doing things all the time. If someone can demonstrate that this is a better way of doing a procedure, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know? It happens all the time, and I think it's a great, great thing. Or being asked, why do you do this? I mean, why, why is the first thing I do with a man overboard is to, to someone yell man overboard, which you hear all the time, scream it, point it, but also throw the man overboard package that I have, which is a rigid pole. I'm not crazy about things that blow up um, to inflate. I'm not crazy about one of those the, the suitcase things that you throw overboard and everything inflates because I mean how many times you've been in a life jacket that hasn't inflated and that's happened a couple of times I don't want that time that the uh, little pole inflatable pole thing doesn't work so I want a real pole with a real flag attached to the back of my boat that's attached to a U float float thing and that's attached to a light it's also attached to a xenon a bulb that's on a that activates when it when it turns over and those three things are thrown overboard and and this last, this last trip, <laughs> I added to the pole an AIS beacon that on, a, on a, one of those little personal AIS beacons that they, they promote for putting into your life jacket. And it has a pull uh, tab attached to it. And so the, the theory is that you can rig it up, the, the, the life jacket inflates and it pulls the little tab, which is pretty iffy as far as I'm concerned. But it'll end up that the man overboard will or crew overboard, however you want to say it, will um, will pull that tab, and then this little antenna flips out, and that, that sends an AIS beacon to the boat, really the only vessel nearby that can really save a man overboard, especially in cold Atlantic conditions. It's the boat that you just left that will save you. <laughs> They're really the only ones. You only have a certain amount of time in the water. So... The uh, the eperbs the personal eperbs overboard.
1: That's <sighs> yeah. not going to help you. That's uh, going to send a signal back to the coast guard in the United States.
0: Right, and it takes a few hours for that process to go through the whole thing, kind of contact a merchant ship. Uh, you'd be long frozen at that point. Uh, not a good scenario. So I'm a real proponent of the AAS system and and having that. So I was thinking, well, how am I supposed to do this? i Am mean, I every life vest? Aboard the boat will have an AIS thing inside the life vest if they whack their heads or whatever is going to happen. uh, They might not pull the tab. Uh, It's going to cost $1,000 for four life vests to have that. Why don't I mount it on the pole? So as we drilled, uh, man overboard, man goes overboard. They're in the water like that. Ah, crap. Man overboard, scream, 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 throw the pole, grab the pole and everything's attached to that pole, and it pulls out. Everything pulls out of their little brackets as you lift the pole up, and you reach up and you grab the tab, yank it. The AIS now is activated. It As you drop the pole overboard, the little AIS antenna flips up on the pole, and that starts broadcasting immediately. And that is probably going to be the closest. So the man overboard is required or told to in, in, in teaching how, if you go overboard and you're conscious, look for the pole, swim to the pole, swim to the flag. You know, that's, that's you, really your job. And, and the worst case scenario is chances are the pole is going to be fairly close to the, to the crew in the water. So that's what you're going to want. And the AIS, meanwhile, is, is sending that beacon back to the boat because it's up high enough on the, uh, on the pole where you can still reach it. But when it's in the water, it's sitting up above the water maybe two, three feet. And so as it's going up and riding the waves, theoretically, and, and it's worked, it's worked. We've used it, we've we've tested it, we've put it in the water, and I'll be damned, the thing comes right up on my chart plotter. It's right there. And so it sends a beacon, and I have an AIS uh, receiver, which I have this uh, watchmate, and that is also, uh, it sits on its own, it has its own screen, but it's also tapped into the chart plotter. So both the, the AIS receiver uh, the standalone unit goes off and the chart plotter also goes off with an alarm stating that there's an AIS very close by and then you're going to be a collision course pretty soon, that kind of thing. So it it puts up this thing in the water right there and it's fantastic. I mean, it it really, it it really is the way to go. I mean, the ultimate way to go is damn it. Don't fall off the boat. (laughs) You know, don't do that. And, uh, and that ties into the harnesses and all the various other things. And those are more procedures that you, you do. And, and certain times of day that everyone's clipped on and, and et cetera, et cetera. But someone does go into the water. This seemed to work. Now I haven't, I haven't used it in, I haven't had a man overboard emergency. I just haven't had that. So uh, we'll see, but through the practices and throwing cushions overboard or doing whatever we're doing to mimic someone going overboard, and uh, actually, I had a trip a couple of years ago, and, and one of the crew members volunteered. They said they're going to jump overboard. They'll jump overboard. We were south of uh, Long, Island's, Long Island at the time. And uh, he said, well, why don't I go overboard? And you, can, you can pick me up. And I said, that's fine. That It's that, really good. But I, I did want to show you this. I had taken, taken a screen grab of, a, uh, of the Great White Shark um, uh, uh, locator survey. On the website, they had they had shown these things because on the East Coast they, they were all on a you know, Twitter a couple of years ago about the Great Whites are coming back because of the populations have have changed, and the waters gotten cleaner, and and uh, there's been this whole thing of wildlife building up. So therefore, Great Whites have come back to Long Island. So I, as a joke, I had just I had taken a, a screen grab of of some of the locators of the three Great White sharks that were patrolling the south part of Long Island where we were. And, uh, so, so I said, you're free to go in the water, but I just wanted to show you this. And, uh, he looked at it, his face just went white. He said, what do you mean? There, there aren't big sharks here. I said, well, we're in the ocean. Yeah, there could be big sharks, but we need someone in the water. So why don't you jump over at <laughs> that point? He wasn't, I mean, the odds of a shark being an exact moment right there, but I have to say when the boat was becalmed, I, I did not jump in the water. I just, uh. Uh, for whatever, uh, I think a lot of sailors have that same idea. We sail on the water, you know, and uh, the idea of jumping overboard in the middle of the ocean, thinking that, uh, uh, and we, we did have an experience crossing the ocean, which a whale surfaced, maybe, of course, it's at night, and and I had that heard that sound, and all of a sudden, this giant looked like a uh, a rock or something had come up about maybe 20 feet off the starboard side of the boat, and it was a whale. whale had come up, and it was... Uh, it was swimming right along our boat and it, I think we think it was a finback and we all got up and uh, looking at this thing who followed us for a little while it was enormous I mean we're a 50-foot boat and this dwarfed at us it was probably 70 feet long as it was going along but it just kind of just came up out of the water it was mountain rising a little bit and it just went right back down again went on its way and uh it was just terrifying and mesmerizing at the same time but uh,
1: anyway I digress so uh, any other questions? What did you think of the town of Gaeta?
0: I, uh, we liked it. We liked it a lot. It, it, it um it was a, um, it was, it was cool. I had, there was the, the pizza place across the way, which you might've been familiar with that I went and had pizza every single night, pizza and a beer and, and walking along it, if he got off the main drag, it was very similar to Alicante and, uh, and parts of Morocco it was interesting. It reminded me of Fez, the back alleys. Uh, once you got off the main drag, it had these, uh, alleys in between these very old buildings that were stretching. It was very, very cool. Um, I felt it was a very, uh, it, you know, not a touristy kind of, kind of town, like a working town where, you know, normal people are. And, and, uh, oh, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I, I think that, that, uh, it, I, I don't necessarily think of it as a tourist destination or a, as a destination I was there because of the boat but at the same time it was a it was a very pleasant uh pleasant city and the uh, the, the people seemed very accepting and you just uh, you don't hear English and you don't hear other languages it was a very very Italian city so
1: so that's where you left your boat did you take the train back to Rome
0: I did actually I had a car drive me back to Rome Okay uh, and that was the, the marina had a service that would would get it back the uh, yeah my two crew guys uh, did take the train back and they got back that way. I had a bunch of bags and uh, and so I ended up uh, they had a, a guy that they used that, that could drive me to Rome. It was only it was a quick trip a little over an hour or so uh, by car uh, getting there so yeah
1: at about two and a half hours by train <laughs> right it was a lot
0: more involved and I think that was part of it my, my flight left it at some crazy hour, seven in the morning, something like that. And that that was the other issue. I would have had to go, go in the night the night before because uh, the trains weren't running that early in the morning. So that became the issue. So I think I left with him at 4.30 a.m. Uh, to get back and uh, to get to the flight. And it all worked out fine. It was very convenient. It's, it's very close to Rome, but without uh, being the marina that we had in Rome, we talked about that one before. That's probably not it probably wouldn 't been an ideal place to leave the boat, and there was that little river on the side which I could have if I was going to leave her floating, but i didn 't feel good about leaving her for ten months like that so
1: so i 'm looking at Google Earth, which one is your boat right right now
0: uh, it's it 's the if you can see near um, the you know i don 't have it up in front of me, but it 's uh, in front of the travel lift, if you can see where that is right I see because the travel it's, lift uh-huh. it 's probably the long smudge that 's next to the power boat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, they can I'm sure they could probably see a little more details than that, but uh they probably uh, it it's uh yeah, it's sitting there and, and Jane's boat has a she has a swan, I think it's a 48 or so that's right nearby. And so uh it, again, it's great having somebody that's there that you can uh, rely on and also that speaks your language. So it makes that a lot more uh comforting on my end.
1: Did you see many other Americans w- while you were there? Were there many other Americans leaving their boats there that you saw? No, but we were a little early. I mean, I left the boat
0: at the end of August, and I think most of the people, it's, it's later in September or October, they're leaving the boats. So I did see um, several German boats that were going were intending to stay there uh, for, the, for the winter, uh, two Dutch boats, and spoke to the, them. Uh, I saw a lot of Dutch boats and a lot of German boats when I was in the Med. You've probably seen that, too uh, and obviously French boats. That was, that was always the thing. I'd see these guys and I'm thinking, damn, they, they, you know, these are some serious sailors. I mean, these are some, some serious sailors. They're Germans, they're Dutch, they're French. I mean, look at their flags because I'm so used to the sailing around the States. And, and when I saw a Dutch or a German boat, I'm thinking, God, they've gone across the ocean. I mean, that, that's pretty impressive. And and obviously now the shoes on the other foot. I'm the guy that they're looking at, and they kept talking to me all the time, saying, "Oh, you're an American. That's fantastic. I can't believe you sailed all the way across." You know, and uh, now you know I'm the rock star that went across the the ocean. They're the local coastal coastal sailors, and they wanted to pick my brain about going across the ocean. So it was it was a very different different way. And but as you know, I mean, the, sailing around and and meeting the fellow cruisers. People with boats—it's a culture in itself, and, and it's filled with just fantastic giving people, and it, and it's just uh, you're 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 tied together in this endeavor, and and how many times uh, you know I've been saved or or helped somebody out on an anchorage someplace, and it's just uh, you know it, it, it's a fantastic uh, lifestyle uh, from that standpoint.
1: So, Dan, I'm going to get you back on before you go sailing this next year, and you're going to give us your plans for next year at that point in time. How does that All sound? Right. We'll do that. We'll do that.
0: That's, that's terrific. This has been been great, Franz. Great to talk to you. I wish you the best, and, uh, yeah, we'll
1: talk later. All right. Talk to you later, Dan. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joel. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it haven't i been telling you every once in a while you just gotta say what the heck and take some chances you are so right you've made me very proud i was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now you know